Good morning. Please turn in your Bibles this morning to Judges chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 7 to 31 this morning. Our first two chapters in the book of Judges have been introduction. Some important things to keep in mind are, first, the book of Judges is characterized by a downhill spiral until Israel gets so Canaanized they are almost as bad as Sodom and Gomorrah. And second, we need to remember that not all of the judges are godly people. Some may have exercised great faith sometime in their life, but some of them were no better than warlords. Just because a judge is used by God, that does not mean God approves of everything they did. God can even use the ungodly to further his purposes. Okay, so with that in mind, and with the introduction behind us, we now encounter the first three judges. And the first of those is Othniel. Before we start, let's pray. Lord, what a difficult passage. Open our eyes and show us what you would have us learn from these puzzling verses. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, let's start by reading chapter 3, verse 7. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and Asherahs. This is step one in the cycle we see many times in the book of Judges. Israel turns away from God and starts worshiping the gods of the Canaanites. And as a result, Israel imitates their immoral behavior. I talked about some of the Canaanite sexual perversions last week, so I won't repeat them this morning. If you missed it all, or missed all of that, my sermons are on the church website. Step two in the cycle is in verse eight. The anger of the Lord burned against Israel, so that he sold them into the hands of Cushan Rishathaim, king of Aram Naharim, to whom the Israelites were subject for eight years. The name Cushan Rishathaim means Cushan the doubly wicked. Not likely that a parent would name their baby doubly wicked, so this is probably the nickname given to him by Israel rather than his birth name. Kind of like when President Trump called the ruler of Syria Animal Assad. Cushion was from Aram Naharim. Aram was part of what we would call Syria. Uh, Naharim means between the two rivers, which is probably referring to the Tigris and Euphrates rivers in the northern part of modern-day Syria. Anyway, in step two, God delivers Israel into the hands of this foreign oppressor. Now think about this. They were oppressed by the, the king of Aram for eight years before they finally cry out to God for help, which is step three in, in verse nine. When they cried out to the Lord, he raised up for them a deliverer, Othniel, son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, who saved them. Now remember, Caleb, along with Joshua, was among the original 12 men that Moses had sent in to spy out the Promised Land. Joshua and Caleb were the only ones to return with a positive report, saying that with God's help, they could indeed conquer the land God had promised to them. Well, Othniel was Caleb's brother. We were introduced to him in chapter 1. Verses 10 and 11 tell us more about Othniel. The Spirit of the Lord came on him so that he became Israel's judge and went to war. The Lord gave Cushan Rishathaim, king of Aram, into the hands of Othniel, who overpowered him 
So the land had peace for 40 years until Othniel, son of Kenneth, died. So step three is when, after eight years, Israel finally cried out to God for relief. Step four in the cycle is when God sent Othniel to deliver them. When the Spirit of the Lord came upon Othniel, and he was victorious. Contrary to many of the other judges, nothing bad is said about Othniel. He is like the model judge compared to the others. What is especially interesting is that Othniel wasn't even ethnically Jewish. He, like his brother Caleb, was a Kenizzite. The important thing to remember in Joshua and Judges is that commitment to the God of Israel was the most important thing, not ethnic or racial background. Even Canaanites like Rahab could be part of the people of God by allegiance to the God of Israel. Thanks to Othniel and his empowerment by the Spirit of God, Israel was free from oppression. So you would think they would learn their lesson. But tragically, the cycle begins all over again with the story of Ehud. Now I have to warn you, this might be the most disgustingly gross story in the whole Bible. It's the kind of story grade school boys would probably love. Verses 12 to 14 say, Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And because they did this evil, the Lord gave Eglon king of Moab power over Israel. Getting the Ammonites and Amalekites to join him, Eglon came and attacked Israel, and they took possession of the city of Palms. The Israelites were subject to Eglon king of Moab for 18 years. Now here we see the cycle repeating itself. Step one is when Israel once again turns away from God and follows the God of the Canaanites and their decadent behavior. So in step two, God gives them over to foreign oppressors. In this case, Moab, assisted by Ammon and Amalek, enemies to the east and south of Judah. The city of Palms was probably near Jericho. Anyway, steps three and four in the cycle begin in verse 15. Again, the Israelites cried out to the Lord, and he gave them a deliverer, Ehud, a left-handed man, the son of Gera of Benjamin. The Israelites sent him with tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now, Moab was just east of Judah, on the other side of the Dead Sea, in what is now modern-day Jordan. Moab ruled over the Israelites for 18 years and required Israel to give them tribute. It's kind of like extortion, but on an international scale. The idea was, you are a conquered nation, and if you don't pay us what we tell you, we'll send our armies back to slaughter your men and sell your wives and children into slavery. To raise the tribute money, the conquered country would have to raise taxes. The taxes necessary to keep the tribute money flowing were often so high that the people would be reduced to poverty. Israel suffered under this oppression for 18 years. So a delegation headed by Ehud was sent to deliver Israel's regular tribute money to King Eglon of Moab. What happens next is a very R-rated story of risk, cunning, and assassination. But before we get to that, why do you think the author thought it was important to point out that Ehud was left-handed? Was it just because most people are right-handed and Ehud was an exception? Or is there a more significant reason? Look at verse 16. 
Now, Ehud had made a double-edged sword about a cubit long, which he strapped to his right thigh under his clothing. The word that NIV translates as cubit here could be from 12 to 18 inches long. It was strapped to Ehud's right thigh, probably the inside of his right thigh. So if you were right-handed, you would put up, uh, put it, excuse me, if you were, let me try this again. If you were right-handed, you would not put your sword on your right side. You would put it on your left side. So when Ehud was searched, he was apparently taking a huge gamble that the king's guard would assume he was right-handed and just pat down his left side. On the other hand, maybe scholars are reading too much into this. Maybe the king didn't even have much security other than his attendants. Some early presidents didn't have any security either. For example, Thomas Jefferson personally answered the door to the White House himself. Either way, Ehud may have been taking a huge risk, putting his life in danger. But the risk paid off. Let's read verses 17 to 19. He presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab, who was a very fat man. After Ehud had presented the tribute, he sent on their way those who carried it. But on reaching the stone images near Gilgal, he himself went back to Eglon and said, Your Majesty, I have a secret message for you. The king said to his attendants, Leave us. And they all left. In Hebrew, there is a play on words here that doesn't come across in English. The Hebrew word for message can mean word or message or thing. So when Ehud says he has a secret message for the king, what he really means is that he has a secret thing for the king, a thing that was strapped to his right thigh. The text describes Eglon as a very fat man. Today, we would criticize that as fat shaming, but that's not how the original readers would have taken it. Eglon's name means bull or calf. So the Israelites would likely see this story as a humorous reference to how Eglon was being like a fatted calf prepared for slaughter. So Ehud was leading a delegation from Israel to deliver their tribute money to King Eglon of Moab. They delivered the money and started heading back for home. But Ehud sent his delegation on ahead while he returned to meet with King Eglon privately. This raises the question, why did Ehud leave the king and come back later? Why didn't Ehud kill Eglon while he had other men with him to help or escape or protect them? The text doesn't tell us, but later on it seems like Israel knew what Ehud was planning. But how did they know? We really don't know the answers to these questions, but if I were going to use a little sanctified imagination and turn this into a historical novel, my story would go something like this. Ehud delivers the tribute money, but is humiliated that Israel is subject to this oppression. On his way back home, he decides that enough is enough. He tells his men that he has decided to assassinate the king of Moab, and he sends his men back home to gather the fighting men of Israel to prepare for war. He tells them that if he returns, 
he will sound the trumpet calling them to war. If he does not return, they will know that his assassination attempt failed. So Ehud goes back in a very high-risk gamble to assassinate Moab's king. And against all the odds, the gamble pays off. He is admitted to the king's chamber, and he tells the king he has a private message for him. The king dismisses his attendants, and the story continues in verses 20 to 23. Ehud then approached him while he was sitting alone in the upper room of his palace and said, I have a message from God for you. As the king rose from his seat, Ehud reached with his left hand, drew the sword from his right thigh, and plunged it into the king's belly. Even the handle sank in after the blade, and his bowels discharged. Ehud did not pull the sword out, and the fat closed over it. Then Ehud went out to the porch. He shut the doors of the upper room behind him and locked them. So picture a big throne room where the king would normally be seated. At the end of the throne room are some wide stairs leading up to an indoor porch, right in front of doors leading to the king's personal upper chambers. That upper room is where the assassination took place. Ehud then locked the doors to that porch. Since the attendants have some kind of primitive key to open them, that may imply that Ehud had to, to lock the doors from the inside. So if so, how did he get out? Well, we don't know. I guess it's just not important to the story. Maybe he escaped through a window and dropped to the ground below. On the other hand, the New Living Translation gives a rather gross possibility that some scholars suspect actually happened. The New Living Translation says, Then Ehud closed and locked the doors of the room and escaped down the latrine. The latrine would have been like an old-fashioned outhouse, only indoors, with an access door below to allow servants to clean out the waste. I guess if you're running for your life, you'll do whatever it takes. Verse 24 says, After he had gone... The servants came and found the doors of the upper room locked. They said, he must be relieving himself in the inner room of the palace. So when the meeting seemed to go on forever, wouldn't the attendants get concerned? Why would they just assume the king was going to the bathroom? Well, verse 22 said that when Ehud plunged the knife in, Eglon's bowels emptied out. Some scholars think the attendants could smell the odor and just assumed he was using the toilet. I told you this was a gross story. So in verses 25 to 27, they waited to the point of embarrassment. But when he did not open the doors of the room, they took a key and unlocked them. There they saw their Lord fallen to the floor dead. While they waited, Ehud got away. He passed by the stone images and escaped to Syrah. When he arrived there, he blew a trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim, and the Israelites went down with him from the hills, with him leading them. Now, the fact that all Ehud had to do was to blow a trumpet, and Israelite warriors immediately responded, 
leads me to think that they had been prepared. And that's why I think that when Ehud had earlier sent men on ahead of him, he was sending them to gather men for war. Verses 28 to 30 tell how Ehud won the war with Moab and made Moab subject to Israel for the next 80 years. So Ehud was certainly someone God used to deliver Israel from oppression, but the question is, was Ehud's deception and the killing of King Eglon approved by God? Some scholars say no. They say the assassination was evidence of a lack of faith by a man who had been canonized into accepting cold-blooded murder as a valid tactic. Other scholars say that what Ehud did was justified by the fact that it was the beginning of a war to liberate Israel from oppression and that God had chosen Ehud to lead that liberation. The author really doesn't tell us which side is right. Maybe the author wanted to make us think, or maybe he just wanted us to focus on the main point, which is that God had mercy on Israel by using Ehud to deliver them from oppression. The third judge in our passage this morning is Shamgar, who appears only in verse 31. After Ehud came Shamgar, son of Anath, who struck down 600 Philistines with an ox goad. He too saved Israel. Now, we don't know anything about Shamgar except this one verse, but here's what we do know. An ox goad was a long, often thick stick with a metal tip used for directing cattle. And Anath was a Canaanite female warrior god. Descriptions of her exploits in ancient Canaanite literature are particularly gruesome. If I had to make a wild guess, and it is only a wild guess, I would guess that Shamgar was the son of a Canaanite woman named after the goddess Anath, and that Shamgar, like Rahab, turned his life over to the God of Israel, and God used him to deliver his people. Now, this story of how Shamgar struck down 600 Philistines with an ox goad is very similar to a later story about how Samson struck down a thousand Philistines with the jawbone of a donkey. The difference is that nothing bad is said about Shamgar. Samson, on the other hand, lives like a Canaanite. The comparison may be deliberate to show how far downhill Israel had gone between Othniel and Shamgar on the one hand, and Samson on the other. So can we learn anything from this passage for today? Absolutely. First, we learn something about God's patience. Even though Israel repeatedly sinned and rebelled against God, when they cried out to him, God repeatedly showed mercy and grace by sending judges or deliverers to save them from their oppression. But in the broader context, we also learn that God's patience has limits. He put up with the terrible decadence of the Canaanites for 400 years before his judgment finally fell. Likewise, his patience with Israel had limits as well. Now, America is not Israel, and this passage was not written to America. But America, like Israel, has become incredibly corrupt and decadent. As I said last week, never in America's history have we sunk to the level of Canaanite sexual perversion that we now see in America. But just as God had mercy on Israel, 
we can hope it's not too late for America either. If God's people cry out to him, perhaps he will yet have mercy and deliver us as well. Second, Othniel was a warrior who had fought with Joshua and Caleb. He was even allowed to marry Caleb's daughter as a reward for conquering one of the powerful Canaanite cities. So why did such an experienced and successful warrior like Othniel wait for eight years before delivering Israel from oppression? I think the answer must be that he was unable to do so. Because of Israel's disobedience, God had given Israel up to their enemies, and not even Othniel was able to deliver them. Not until Israel finally cried out to God for help. Then, and only then, in verse 10, the Spirit of the Lord came on him, so that he became Israel's judge and went to war. Othniel became, victor became victorious and delivered Israel from oppression. But it wasn't because Othniel was such a brilliant general. It wasn't because he had such a powerful army. It was only because Israel cried out to God for help, and the Spirit of God came upon Othniel. The application for us today is that we need to be constantly aware that we will never accomplish anything of eternal significance unless we rely on the Spirit of God. And we need to be constantly praying that the Spirit of God would be at work in our church and in our personal lives. Let's pray. Lord, we pray, we plead that you would have mercy on our country. We pray that you would awaken your people to lead a spiritual great awakening and that America as a whole would repent of their sin and turn to you. And Lord, we also pray that your Holy Spirit would be powerfully at work in our church and in each of our personal lives. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.